CFCs, we, uh, well, I'll just say this. I know some of you have been uh, praying for me. I've asked it half-jokingly, but not, not really so much jokingly uh, for prayer, getting into the series that we're beginning on, the book of Revelation. Revelation is intense. Uh, it's discussions about the book of Revelation have been um, contentious oftentimes in the Christian church, confusing, sometimes to the point of... Um, People may be backing off more than they should. It is scripture, and we want to take it seriously. Some of you journal as you, you know, we typically go through books uh, in our sermons, and you journal through. We have a box of journals that have the text of Revelation on one side and a blank page on the other side, and then you can keep that with you. What did we talk about when we were in Revelation 3? You can go to Revelation 3, see your notes. If you're into that, uh, we want to give you that. So can I have a few of our ushers to come back up and, and help us pass out some of these? We've got two different kinds, not to be sexist or anything, but maybe the ladies enjoy. This has like different pictures and doodles throughout. This is just plain blank. You know, it's just the text and the page. So whichever one you want, uh, we've got stacks of each one. Maybe just raise your hand to show that you want one. And uh, the rest of you who don't journal will just look at you judgingly. Uh, and pray for your weary souls to one day get to our level, okay? I think this will be helpful to track with what's going on in the book of Revelation. Uh, There should be pens, if you didn't bring a pen, there should be pens in the seat pockets in front of you, next to those connection cards, uh, if you need one of those. Once in a while... I'll refer to a particular page in there. Right before the text of Revelation starts, there's a blank page. uh, Right after the preface, it's just a blank page like that. And once in a while, I might reference that and say, hey, write this there, because it's it's about the whole book. So later on, when you're going through the book of Revelation, you want to study it again, and you want this journal to help you with it, you can go to this page and look at some things to help you understand the book as a whole, not necessarily any particular passage. So that's the blank page just before the preface. And maybe there's some blank pages in the back. There are. So special notes, you've got like five or six pages in the back uh, that you can put extra things in. I'm just talking to buy time, really. Uh, looks like everyone's got what they need. Maybe Simon in the back. Got, how did Simon get left out? I don't know how that happened. Do we need more? Oh, Ben's got you. Okay. All right. Uh, We've got plenty more. So if any of you realize next week somebody wasn't here and missed it, we've got we've got plenty. Okay. Um, But why don't we open with a word of prayer? Because we need it. I know I do. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this tremendous book. And sometimes we don't feel thankful. It's difficult. But we pray that as we take it one step at a time, moving through this, this book, we pray that you would Uh, Give us eyes to see what you have to say to us as a church today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the book of Revelation is is easy to find. It's the last book in your Bible. So even if it's your first time cracking open a Bible, you go to the last book uh, of the New Testament. The last book of the whole Bible is the book of Revelation. And as we make our way there, I think it's helpful to note why the book of Revelation has been so difficult. I mean, I could spend the entire time this morning talking about why it's so difficult. 
but one of those difficulties, I think, is you've got two extremes uh, among Christians, I think. And one extreme is the Christian who is like, nobody agrees on anything, millennial this, preterism that, a bunch of words I don't know, and you know, there's all these timelines and charts and everybody argues about it. I'm just going to spend my time in the Psalms. You know, like I'm just going to read the Gospel of John. Not that much clearer <laughs> in, in many places, but we just feel a little bit more comfortable because this is full of dragons and serpents and many-horned beasts, and it's weird, you know? And it's like, let me just... The psalm tells me to praise him because his steadfast love endures forever. Great, you know, done, no charts. Um, and then Revelation, uh, because it's scary, it's, uh, we, we spend our time in other books and we ignore that one. But it's scripture, it's the word of God, and that's not a good place to be. The other extreme is the Christian that loves it so much. It is the one book that he or she studies. It's the one book that has underlines, you know, highlights in it. There's chart stuffed in there. Um, they, they listen to preachers that preach basically not, on nothing else except apocalyptic literature, which is end time stuff, right? And the weird enigmatic codes with visions and all dreams and all these weird symbols. And it's like, yes. And the reason, one of the reasons why they love it so much is because they read the book of Revelation in one hand. And while they're reading it, in the other hand, they hold a newspaper, and they're like, what's going on in Russia? Oh, what chapter of Revelation is that? Where am I in the book of Revelation? Oh, that must be Ukraine. What's happening in Israel? Let me find that. In Reve- See, it's, it's, the, it's Revelation in one hand and the current day newspaper in the other hand. And I think that's a grave mistake. I don't think the book of Revelation is meant to, to be used as a code to decipher what's happening in the world around you with specific uh, regard to political rulers, regimes, countries, etc. Right, I'm already making enemies. I don't know. This is, this is difficult. But you don't want to be that guy, and I hope that I can convince you you don't want to be this guy by the end of our time together. What I think we should do is hold Revelation in one hand, and in the other hand hold the Old Testament. The Old Testament. Because the book of Revelation is chock full of Old Testament references, references, and he doesn't, there's no like, hey, by the way, this is Ezekiel. Oh, hey, by the way, this is Daniel. Now, some of you have Bibles with little superscripts, we call them, little letters. Maybe you need to put your reading glasses on and see them. And then if you look in the real tiny font, maybe in the gutter of the Bible, right in the bottom of the page, it'll say, hey, this is Daniel 7. Hey, this is from Isaiah whatever. Track those down. And write those down. I can't cover all of them in the sermons because we'll be in Revelation for, you know, three years or something like that. Just, just case in point, uh, by a couple standards, I didn't research it myself, like, personally, but looking up others who have tracked down those Old Testament references, there are f- over 500 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Over 500 references. There are 404 verses That's a lot of Old Testament. So imagine, imagine being this person, studying it hard, or being this person, I don't get it, I'm confused. Both of them suffer from really the same problem. They don't know the Old Testament. So imagine you have a favorite show on Netflix or something, right? And it's got like eight seasons. And across all eight seasons, these characters have been developing. Some guys have got killed off. This person turned out to be a bad guy. This bad guy turned out to be a good guy. The moles have been discovered. There's all these plot twists. 
And then the final climactic episode is this big deal. It's about to drop. You're calling your friends. You're, you're getting your snacks from Target. You're, you're, you're finally cleaning your living room because you're going to have people over. And there's going to be a huge watch party to find out what's going to happen in this climactic final episode of these eight long seasons building up. And then you invite a friend over, and you're expecting your friend to get real pumped up with you about this show. And you're like, hey, have you seen the show before? You're like, no, I've never seen one episode. You'd be like, well, come on over and watch it anywhere. Would you be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold off and watch the seasons and then watch the final episode. This guy's diving into the final episode and without knowing the Old Testament, he's just thinking about what's happening today, what's happening in my newspaper. John wasn't thinking about the Chicago Tribune. John was thinking about the Old Testament. So when he says things like the Son of Man, you're supposed to think Daniel 7. Why do you think of Daniel 7? Because I don't read Daniel. And so John expects you to be an Old Testament student with the Old Testament in one hand, and then he's saying all those things we saw in the Old Testament, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. Daniel was talking about Jesus. Ezekiel was talking about Jesus. Isaiah was talking about Jesus. And it's all coming together. All those Old Testament promises, prophecies, symbols, dreams, visions are all coming to a head in Christ Jesus. And that's why the first verse says, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not timelines, not the revelation of political rulers, right? The revelation of Jesus Christ. If you study the revelation and you miss Jesus, you missed it completely. That's for sure. Our focus is supposed to be the Messiah, Jesus the Savior, Christ the anointed Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament and is revealed fully in the New Testament, climaxing in this book. Yes, it's full of symbols. Yes, there's lots of imagery. But if you ever remember, what am I supposed to be focusing on again? The first line. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then, important note, the revelation. Not revelations, plural. Lots of people say, well, I I love the book of Revelations. Wow, I never read it before. You know why? Because it doesn't exist. Maybe it exists out there somewhere, but that's not this. This is the revelation given to John. Lots of mini visions, mini dreams, mini episodes. But, you know, you're you're not like, I love the show Lost. Right? It's lost, even though there's lots of episodes. You, you call the show one thing, one title. This entire book is one grand vision given to John to communicate to the churches. The revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a revelation of a person and what he is to do and what he's done. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So an angelic spirit being messenger gives this revelation to John, the human apostle, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near." We see right there immediately the benefit of studying the book of Revelation. Even though this guy's got it wrong, and this guy's got it wrong by ignoring it, we need to be in this place where we understand what we're supposed to do with it, see Jesus, but not ignore it, 
because that would be sinful. And we'd be missing out on blessing. We're commanded to read it aloud, to hear it, and keep it. And by keeping it, he doesn't mean watch out to not vote for the wrong person because you might vote in the Antichrist and then he's going to put a UPC thing in your hand. That's not what it's going after here. Okay, What it's going after is for you to attain a blessing for keeping the book of Revelation, not keeping it by figuring out weird timelines, but keeping it by being faithful to the end. Some people joke, I'm not a premillennialist, I'm not a amillennialist, I'm a panmillennialist. It's all going to pan out as long as it's Jesus Christ. And it's kind of a funny joke, and sometimes I roll my eyes and I'm like, that sounds like you're lazy and you're not doing your homework. Like, figure it out. But there's truth to it. There's truth to it. Regardless of how all of the details, I'm going to say things you disagree with. A lot of things I'm going to go, look, there's two or three positions. Here's a position I take. I'm not saying that's the only position to take, but... I can't just stand up here and, and go, look, I don't understand this. Skip to chapter 4. Like, we're going to unpack stuff. And I'm not going to arrogantly say I know how every detail pans out. But there is truth in saying, as long as we remember chapter 1, verse 1, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Are you ready for the end or are you not ready for the end? Right? That is the main thing that we want to come away with. You're blessed, not with houses, cars. Oh, if I study Revelation, I'll get cars. I'll get money. I'll be able to, you know, that's not what it means by blessing. Remember Psalm 1? Who is the blessed person? The blessed person is the person who doesn't walk, stand, or sit with the sinners. But he meditates on God's word day and night. And what's the result? All the sinners enter into judgment at the end of Psalm 1. And the person who meditated on God's word day and night is blessed by God because he doesn't go into judgment. He doesn't go under condemnation. He's rescued forever. So already we have Psalm 1 channeling into the opening of the book of Revelation. Meditate on God's word. This is God's word, and we shouldn't leave it out like this guy. Use Revelation in your quiet time. We should preach through Revelation. That's why I'm doing it now. Because we attain a blessing for keeping it. We keep it when we endure to the end by holding firmly to our confession of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's how we're blessed. That's why we read it. That's why. We... Now let's already get into some controversy. Okay, look at the, the first verse there. It says he made it. I'm sorry. Even before that, uh, which God, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And that soon, that nearness, is, uh, you see it again in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. The time is upon you. So when we go forward and you've got a beast coming out of the sea and a dragon attacking the woman and two witnesses are walking and they're killed and then they come back to life. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Others of you are like, I can't wait. You get that part. That's my favorite part. I love the two witnesses. Okay, okay, we're going to walk through all those details. A lot of what people argue about is, hey, he said these things are soon to take place. Now you've got some Christians that uh, we'll call them but they're called preterists. Don't worry about that. They see the, the book of Revelation as having already happened. Okay? And then other people are futurists, meaning everything John is writing has yet to happen, even for us. Some people say it already happened even for John. Some people say it, it was about to happen for John. That's why it says soon take place. 
but it already happened for us. So let me maybe have to put it this way, okay? I'm John, and I'm writing the book of Revelation, and these are the events that are symbolized with the dragons and the beasts and the witnesses and uh, the, the prostitute of Babylon and all that stuff, okay? And this is the timeline going this way. John is either writing, reflecting on stuff that just happened, or he's writing, reflecting on things that are right about to happen. They haven't happened yet, but they're, a right, they're about to drop. Futurists would say, no, 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 he's writing about stuff that's going to happen way, way later. All of those have some problems to them, okay? The problem with this one, stuff that just happened, is that it's about to take place. The problem with this one, even though it says it's about to take place, is how is it relevant for us? Now I definitely don't have to look out for Antichrist because he already came. It was Nero or whatever, right? It was Domitian, whoever the emperor was. That's debated. I think it's a trap to get caught in picking one or the other. I think the truth is all three. Y'all know I don't normally do this. It's all of it. Everybody's right. Everybody gets a trophy. I hate that. But in this particular case, it's a mix, okay? I think he's drawing... this. One of these is true. Either it was... Uh, an emperor that just was doing the things that he's writing about and all the persecution he's writing about, it was all the Christians at that time were like, oh yeah, I remember that was a couple years ago, right? Or something like that. Or the stuff that's about to happen and he's on this side. I don't know which one is true here. Maybe if I ever preach the Revelation again, I'll have a better angle on it. I don't know which one of these are true. But either one, whether John is writing about what's immediately about to drop or just dropped, both of those things are patterns. Patterns of what will happen later. And the reason why I think that's clear is that's how the Old Testament works. Old Testament's full of patterns. One was the first exodus where Israel was trapped and then had to escape and flee Egypt. Not exodus, Genesis, when Abraham was in Egypt and he had to get out and that's, the, that's Genesis going, hey, Exodus is about to happen. But what's Exodus about? Exodus is about our story and our journey, that we all have to be rescued out of Egypt. And through baptism, we go through the water and escape judgment. And then we enter a wilderness experience, right? And, of course, Jesus lives it out in the gospel. He comes out of Egypt, goes through uh, baptism, enters temptation in the wilderness, etc. We covered that recently. So it's, it's a both and. John is writing to churches who they're able to look around them and go, okay, I know what you're talking about. I know the emperor. I know this is about Rome. I know this is about the persecution. But this is to churches for, throughout all the ages because none of that stuff stops. Persecution didn't stop back then. And as John reminds us, there are many antichrists. The church is persecuted throughout the ages. When Jesus told his disciples, you will be persecuted, the world will hate you, he doesn't mean just in the first generation. Then after that, nobody hates Christians anymore. What the disciples experienced in their day keeps happening. It's a pattern that continues. Okay? So I'll remind you of that as we push forward. And I'm trying to be mindful of the clock because there's so much here. We're not going to go through all of chapter 1. Let's press ahead a little bit. We're blessed if we read it. Because we endure to the end, we hold to this truth of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's a revelation about him. And it's written about things that are soon to take place because they were right upon the readers of John in his time, in the first century, and because every church has to be mindful of our returning king 
and the plight that awaits every generation of every church. Now, here's his audience, verse 4. John is writing, okay, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Who's over all the timeline? Jesus Christ. And from the seven spirits who were before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. <clears throat> Let's pause there for a second. He is writing to seven churches, the seven churches that are in Asia. Okay. Now we're going to sit here just for a minute and unpack this word, the number seven because it's crucial to the book of Revelation. It's like watching Star Wars and you don't know what the force is. What's the force? That it's crucial to understand Revelation, to understand seven, sevenness. Seven means complete, full. Were there only seven churches in Asia? I don't think so. I don't think John is saying, hey, there's only seven churches and some church out there that what doesn't get named in, the, in chapters two and three, like, hey, we're not a church. Not all the, the exclusive seven churches, but these seven churches represent all churches. And we'll see that every uh, message to each of those seven churches that we see in chapter two and three ends with the door getting kicked open. Everything I just told you, specific church, applies to all the churches. Read this to all the churches. So it's not just seven singular churches. Seven throughout the Old Testament represents completeness, fullness. Okay, six days of work. And it was complete, rest on the seventh day. We just see that again and again. Seven represents completeness, fullness. So you've got seven actual churches that he addresses, but they represent the complete church, capital C. All churches are represented by these seven. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm glad because it gets weird. He calls them the seven churches that are in Asia, and then he says, grace and peace to you, or grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God and through Jesus Christ. And it says, and from the seven spirits are before the throne. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this. Kind of want you to trust me on it, but I, I encourage you to dig deep on it. Who are those seven spirits? Some say there's seven archangels, and they'll quote some, uh, like, first book of Enoch or something like that. Some people say the, the seven angels that open up the bowls or the seven angels that blow the seven trumpets that we'll see later in Revelation. I think is representative of the Holy Spirit because seven represents fullness, it's not the first time plural has been used of God. And because you've got this Trinitarian formula between God, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ just in this passage here. Um, so seven spirits could mean angels, but I think it probably means the Holy Spirit. But the point that I want to make is how could seven apply to the Holy Spirit? His fullness, his completeness, his perfection. Okay? There's one more thing I want you to see with the number seven that represents fullness, completion, is going to help us walk through the book of Revelation. This is probably the only chart I'm going to give you, and I don't even have a slide. I'm just going to verbally give it to you, okay? So I talked about that blank page in the beginning of your journal, or if you want to use a blank page in the back of your journal. The book of Revelation is broken up into seven sections. If you want to outline the book of Revelation, it's got seven chunks, seven episodes. I like that. Let's go with episodes. Seven episodes within this show called revelation okay seven episodes the first one is the seven lampstands that's chapters one to three the first episode is the seven lampstands that's chapters one to three the second episode are the seven seals not the animal but like when a scroll is sealed with a wax 
thing, you've got to break it, and you know that if it's broken, somebody had the authority to read it. Seven seals, that's chapters 4 through 7. The next episode is seven trumpets, that's chapters 8 through 11. Seven trumpets, chapters 8 through 11. Then you've got that awesome dragon episode, right? The dragon versus the woman. That's 12 to 14. Chapters 12 to 14 is the dragon. Then you've got seven bowls. That's chapters 15 and 16. Seven bowls. Chapters 15 and 16. Then the sixth episode is the fall of Babylon. That's chapters 17 and 19. The fall of Babylon, chapters 17 and 19. And then finally, the seventh episode, the great consummation which is the final chapters, 20 to 22. The Great Consummation is the seventh episode, and that takes us from chapter 20 to chapter 22. So seven lampstands, seven seals, seven trumpets, the dragon, seven uh, bowls, the fall of Babylon, the Great Consummation where everything gets wrapped up. Okay, Seven episodes, that is the structure of the book of Revelation. Now you might be like, that's kind of random. Maybe you're just kind of squeezing it into seven. Each episode ends or contains a pouring out of God's wrath. Every one of those seven episodes has God pouring out his wrath at some point in that episode. And you're going to start to feel as we move through Revelation, I feel like I saw this episode already. You did. Because it's the same episode. Did that just blow your mind? Because it did for me, studying this anew. It's the same episode. What about episode six? Episode one. What about episode 7? That was episode 6. It's recast. It's a new vision. There's some fresh symbols, but it's the same episode. Not everybody agrees with that, but I think as you look through it, it's really difficult to bust up that train. Most people that see differences in the episodes will grant that most of the episodes are the same episode, but to squeeze in their particular crazy timeline that they like to draw out on the whiteboard... One of those episodes has to kind of take a time out and step to the side and then come back in the middle of the episode. It's kind of weird. But you've got all these seven, seven lampstands, seven seals, seven trumpets, a seven-headed beast, just seven bowls, the fall of Babylon, this great consummation. That, compromise, that comprises seven different chapters, seven episodes. Each of those has instances of God's wrath poured out, so seven pouring out of God's wrath. Each of those episodes starts with the first coming of Christ and ends with the second coming of Christ. Right? Does Jesus come 14 times? No, it's the same episode. He comes and he's coming again. He came and he's coming again. He came and he's coming again. Each of the seven episodes. And then finally, as you read through the seven episodes, you see that the same themes are just escalating, escalating, escalating. He's not dropping new stuff. He's just enhancing the stuff you saw in the previous episode. Okay, I hope that makes sense and that's clear to you because that's the outline I'm going to be referring to. And the reason why that's relevant, guys, is because I don't think we should approach the book of Revelation, this revelation of Jesus Christ that prepares us for the end, to go, which chapter are we currently in? You know what I mean? Okay, we've got this stuff happening in the Middle East. Let me see. Maybe we're, I thought we were in chapter 4, but maybe we're in chapter 3. I don't think that's the way to do it. The church throughout the entire church age has all been in the same episode. We just have seven uh, versions of it. Each episode, after episode one, is a sort of recap. I should say after episode three, because episode one is messages to these churches. Hey, live like this, live like this, live like this. 
second episode starts this sort of overarching, sweeping story of persecution and victory. Persecution and victory over and over again. That brings Revelation into a much simpler view. I think one that we can handle. We've got seven episodes, and every time I move through the chapters, I see, okay, this is, oh, the episode's kind of starting again. And each episode has similar themes, similar, similar focal points, and that'll be helpful for us to not be overly stressed with identifying who is the one Antichrist and are, will they be selling the mark of the beast at Casey's on the corner? Like, you see, pressing it into that kind of specificity, I think, puts us into a kind of danger that uh, energizes the people who are into enigmas and codes, right? They do Sudoku for breakfast, and they like, you know what I mean? And then this person over here who's just like, ugh, codes. It's exasperating. But there is a kind of simplicity to it especially if we channel the Old Testament. Let me move ahead. He's addressing the churches, the seven churches that represent all churches, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. This is verse uh, 5. The firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. This is what he wants to remind the churches. You're surrounded by kings who want to torture you. You're surrounded by rulers who want to kill you. You're surrounded by politicians who want to destroy the church. But they are all ruled by one king. He came, and he's coming. That's your encouragement. Your encouragement is not figuring out every single detail that people argue about. Your encouragement is what every Christian agrees upon throughout all the church age, is that Jesus Christ is the king of kings. That's our encouragement. He loves us. He says to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his father, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What we see there is the way that Jesus conquers is not by making us politicians and making us take over the state, but he makes us a, a, a kingdom. And as we expand that kingdom, inviting other people into that kingdom, we operate as priests. Priests take people's stuff and bring it to God. Now, Jesus does that, but through his church, through us, we are a priesthood of believers, right? Peter teaches us that. We see that throughout the Bible. And this is reminding us that God has a kingdom right now, and it's advancing, but it's not advancing through, through physical might and power. It's not advancing by us collecting a bunch of ARs downstairs, it's by going out and being a light in this dark world. And every time we baptize somebody, that kingdom just grew. Satan lost another one. That's how the church expands God's kingdom. And that's how we operate as priests. It's not by hiding out in the hills. You remember that? 88 reasons why Jesus is returning in 1988. People that are at least my age. And then like the sequel came out in 1999. Oops, my bad. 89 reasons why it's 1989 or whatever it was. Some people take that and like, whoa, let's go hide. You know, and they, they store up jugs of water and cans of tuna to just hide out. Because we might, what if we're left behind? You know, all this stuff. You need to be ready, not by hiding in the hills, but by being a light. And that's why he calls the churches lampstands in just a moment. Um, I was going to show you these verses. I don't think we have time. Uh, but... 
in chapter, uh, verse 7, he's channeling Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12, and he's putting those two verses together. So you can write those down, Daniel 7, 13 to 14. Daniel 7, 13 to 14, and Zechariah 12, 10. And this is just a case in point. When he talks about verse 7, Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He's not like, wow, here's his new vision. He's like, remember Daniel 7? Remember Zechariah 12? Y'all been studying this? When they had quiet times, all they had was the Old Testament, right? They knew these verses, and he's like, Jesus is the one that Daniel was talking about. He makes little adjustments to it, where in Daniel, the one, the son of man who comes in the clouds is going to the Father. Uh, Here, he's saying that the one who uh, goes to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 is, is coming this way. And he's coming with his kingdom. And he, every eye will see him. Now he's in Zechariah. Even those who pierced him will see him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Who are these people? Well, you could take it literally. Those who literally crucified Jesus on the cross fulfilled it. That's true. When you read John chapter 19, you remember the Roman soldier that took the spear and, and he literally pierced Jesus. John says, hey, this is Zechariah 12. Those who pierced him will see him. But in Zechariah 12, the people who pierced him are given grace and mercy, and then they repent over it. And it's, it's the tribes of Israel. And then here he's saying, uh, all the tribes of the earth who pierced him. Well, how did the, the dude in Bahamas pierce him? How did I pierce him? Well, you can extrapolate that he doesn't mean just the one soldier who stuck the spear in his side. Because we could like, well, it was the Roman soldiers that did it. It was that Roman soldier, at least, that did it. Or we could say it was the Roman soldiers that were there. You know what? It was their superiors. You know what? Let's kick it up. It was Pilate, wasn't it? Pilate was the one who was over it. But Pilate didn't instigate it. The Jewish rulers did. You know what? The Jewish rulers are the ones who pierced them. And if you keep extrapolating, you know where you're going to end up? I did it. You did it. The occasion, even though it was carried out by specific people, the occasion was my failure and my sin. So all those who pierced them, that's everybody. But what's not everybody are those who mourn over it. Some people are like, yeah! But those who repent, that receive the grace that Zechariah talked about in chapter 12, those are the ones who are repentant about the fact that we pierced them. So verse 7 is about Christians. All over, everywhere, who recognize their guilt and Jesus having to take the cross for us. We warn, we wail over it because he's our bridegroom and we want him back. And he says, even so, amen. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who, was, who is to come, the Almighty. Finally, last thing we'll see. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. So John is exiled in Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. All these apostles got killed. He's still alive because he's writing this testimony. I think God saved him for this book that you hold in your hand. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Send this message to these seven churches and this loud trumpet-like announcement uh, voice saying, I'm here, 
and I'm giving this message to the churches. Point out really quickly in, in verse 9 these three realities that describe your life if you're a Christian. John says, I'm a partner with you, I'm a brother with you in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. Those three things are the reality of the Christian's life. The book of Revelation is about your life with regard to those three things. One, you will experience tribulation. When we talk about tribulation, we're like, oh, the great tribulation. Is it seven years? Is it three and a half and then three and a half? Does he rapture us first? Do we rapture afterward? Everyone talks about tribulation, capital T. But right here, he's just saying tribulation in general, small t, trials that every Christian experiences. You will experience tribulations. And one of the greatest false gospels that we hear is promising that if you come to Jesus, you won't experience tribulation. Come to Jesus, you'll get out of poverty. Come to Jesus, you won't get cancer. Come to Jesus, you won't, et cetera, et cetera. And while they're driving their big cars around and living in their huge mansions, all their poor people are trying to put more money in the plate buying this lie. When the truth is, follow Jesus and you're going to be crucified. Take up your cross and follow me. He tells the rich young ruler, give up all your stuff and follow me. Tells the disciples, drop your nets and follow me. It's, it's experiencing a kind of loss to follow Christ. And Jesus made it clear that disciples will experience this in different levels. We all don't get persecuted the same way that others of our brothers and sisters right now are being persecuted in other places on this planet. And we could be thankful for that. Now, if I ask myself if I'm ready for tribulation like that, I can ask myself, am I ready for tribulation around the water cooler? Do I not bring up Jesus because I want to dodge an awkward conversation? If my, tribula- my greatest tribulation is an awkward conversation and I'm still not being a light in a lampstand, That's pretty indicting. If we've got brothers and sisters willing to be beheaded for the name of Christ, we can risk losing a job. We can risk losing a few likes on Facebook. But nonetheless, even though there are different levels of tribulation, we experience tribulation. So we experience tribulation, but we experience it because we're in the kingdom. And it's it's a successful kingdom. It's an effective kingdom. It's a growing, advancing kingdom. So how do you put those two together? I'm in this victorious, conquering kingdom, but I'm experiencing tribulation. How do you put the two together? The third one is patient endurance. Patient endurance. Be patient and endure. The entire book of Revelation is equipping you to do just that. What's Revelation for? What is it? It's a revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. What's it for? How do I live it? Patiently await your coming king. That's your great blessing. As we patiently await our coming king, we read through a book like this that's full of victory, full of promises, full of challenges, even rebukes, corrections, and we own those, and we operate as lampstands. I never, this didn't dawn on me, truth be told, till this morning. I was just kind of grabbing like a third or fourth book and just like checking quick, what does he say? And it's the first time I, I saw it pointed out that the churches are lampstands, not lamps. In other words, that's, there's a different Greek word for the lamp that sits on the lampstand. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but what is a, what's the job of a lampstand? The lampstand is in the light. The lampstand holds up the light. And that's our job as a church in this world while we're experiencing tribulation. Paul tells Timothy this, right, that we, the church is the pillar and but, buttress of the truth. The church isn't the truth, but what's the job of a pillar or a buttress? Just like these big 
brown beams, they hold up the ceiling, you can be thankful, right? They, they hold it up. And sometimes we get some windy and we hear it creaking and we're like, ah, I hope those work. Their job is to hold up that weight. And the church's job is to hold up the light of Jesus Christ in this dark world full of beasts and dragons and, and enemies and persecution. All of that darkness is being pierced with the light of Jesus Christ. And even if the world threatens to snuff it out, it will advance and it will grow. And others from darkness will come into the light because we're priests bringing them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we just learn one thing moving through the book of Revelation, it's to be encouraged to be a light in darkness, even though the darkness is scary, even though we're surrounded by enemies and tribulation, we patiently endure and we take the light out into the darkness. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, as we close in this time of worship, we pray that you would encourage our hearts, Lord, to not be scared, to not be fearful of uh, trials and hardships, but to uh, lean into them with endurance. None of us are going to click our heels about hardships and difficulties. Uh, none of us enjoys being ridiculed and maligned, reviled. Uh, but if we need to experience that to see you better, so be it. And we pray that you would give us grace and strength to survive it, to even thrive in it, and that as the enemy tries to choke out the church, that it would just grow exponentially as a result. We thank you for our victorious King Jesus Christ, and it's his, in his name that we pray and sing. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close on this song.